welcome to Rising. We've got a great show for you today. Bacha is off, and Brianna will be here later this week. But today we have Alimi Aluren back with us. So nice to see you, Alimi. It's exciting to be here, Robbie. Thank you for having me. Our pleasure. Our pleasure. Well, we've got a lot to get to. Abraham Enriquez and Dr. Patricia Campos Medina will join to discuss some new polling data from Latino voters, and then also we'll get into, of course, Kanye West deplatforming from Twitter and Instagram. But first, last Thursday, President Biden announced he will issue mass pardons for people convicted of possessing marijuana under federal law. The White House will also advise the Department of Justice to review cannabis's status as a Schedule I drug, where it's currently classified along with heroin, LSD, and ecstasy. Let's watch this. As I said when I ran for president, no one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. It's already legal in many states. And criminal records for marijuana possession have led to needless barriers to employment, to housing, to educational opportunities. And that's before you address the racial disparities around who suffers the consequences. While white and black and brown people use marijuana at similar rates, black and brown people are arrested, prosecuted, and convicted at disproportionately higher rates. The announcement serves as an unexpected win for cannabis and criminal justice reform advocates alike. However, not everyone is completely satisfied. Policy experts told Rolling Stone that the pardon is set to cover at least 6,000 people who have received a federal possession conviction since 1992, but none of them are currently incarcerated. That's compared to the almost 40,000 Americans the White House says are currently serving time for other cannabis-related charges. Criminal defense lawyer Dr. Rebecca Kavanaugh tweeted, quote, Biden's announcement is kind of smoke and mirrors because most federal prosecutions for marijuana are for sale or for trafficking, not possession, even when the amount of weed involved is very small. The pardon also fails to cover people who were in the country illegally when they were charged. So a more limited um, uh, effect than it might seem at first, although certainly I would say a step in the right direction, something President, uh, something that you know, many people who voted for President Biden yes. wanted him to do, you know, kind of a, he's a drug warrior kind of guy yep. from a long time ago. Um, obviously, his vice president is. Right. But, uh, but you know, this is a good, good uh, trajectory. I actually agree. I'm normally pretty critical of Biden, but actually when this news, um, this news broke, I actually tweeted out that, you know, if he does actually take marijuana off the federal schedule of drugs and he pardons these things, that will be a significant step in the right direction. Although I want to be fair, in fairness, this, there are lots of people that are not going to be positively impacted, right? It shouldn't just extend to people who possess marijuana, but right. also people who have sold marijuana, too. I also think it's important that he encourage the states to, to do similarly with state convictions, because that's where most possession cases are, are handled on the right. state level. The federal government actually doesn't prosecute these things, which also I think is relevant when we look at who this will impact, because more likely, not only are this only 6,500 people from 1992 to now, but they probably have other charges and other things, right? They don't, the federal government generally doesn't uh, handle these kinds of possessions. So it probably won't have as positive an, of an impact there. I would say the people who would most stand to benefit from a law like this are immigrants. Immigrants mm. federally, the federal issue, immigrants are often deported. Many immigrants have been deported or made inadmissible because of things like this. But unfortunately, the specific caveat on the law, 
excludes yeah. them. So I am I'm wary of just how impactful it will be. But I want to give credit where credit is due, and this is still a positive right. step for a for a drug that is treated like heroin, like LSD, et cetera. Right. That is you know not addictive right. not does not like kill i, I don't know where, where are the bodies the the, the uh, marijuana bodies right. i don't know there's dozens of them i don't know it's decriminalized in 31 states right. already it's legal in 11 states we already just pop cultures uh in our just our social values marijuana just isn't we don't view marijuana the same way we did and it's absurd that there are people thousands of people all over this country sitting in prison for selling marijuana on the state level but also and possessing it on the state level so i think we have to take consideration to that it, it is good because i think the federal government making a statement that they're going to back off from marijuana in a particular mm -hmm. kind of way will encourage states to to act similarly but i think it's important to look at the the scope of what will actually happen what still needs right. to happen coming right and th it. there are people for who are in pain yes for, for whom cannabis right. can be a substitute for other uh help them deal with right. chronic pain, and can be a substitute for far more harmful things right. like opioids, right. which are our whole drug problem right now is, is these kind of inadvertent poisonings from fentanyl, right. which is making its way into our opioids yes. and 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 you know the prescription the prescribing and all all of that going on we want good right. healthier alternatives to opioids right. marijuana is one of them and the federal government has been treating it like like it's this insanely harmful dangerous Agreed. risky substance no and no one no one on earth can make an argument for why alcohol is legal and marijuana is right. illegal there's just no it falls apart of minimum scrutiny and i will say while we're in the process of saying you know black people although black and white people uh, use use marijuana at similar rates and we are disproportionately arrested and incarcerated and prosecuted for it. The same is true of, of selling drugs. And I think that's important when you look at currently, our current, we have weed is legalized in many states, it's decriminalized in many states, and you see all kind of places, even like New York City, who are getting the cannabis license, white people, white people being allowed to get these licenses lawful and sell weed and make entire businesses out of it. I can't tell you how many times I've seen um, my boy Seth Rogan doing all kind of cute stuff with weed and you see it, you see it treated in this in this very um not criminal very friendly very right. understood very socially accepted way and at the same time their entire communities still being plagued with the after effects right. of not being given that benefit so to me it's important i want to give biden credit where it's due because listen i recognize it's a process he's yeah. come a long way from where he originally stood on marijuana and i want to give that credit but he's he's got to go further and, and republicans should recognize that this is a, a decentralization thing yes. in, in part like let states that want to experiment with looser restrictions right. on marijuana, that want to allow a business uh, uh, businesses to, start to sell cannabis, right. let them do that right now because the federal government, the Biden administration currently, right. has made that it, it confusing mm -hmm. and, and allowing for law enforcement and, and harassing of, of Americans who are just right. trying to work. Right. Like, that is not some, that is something Republicans should be against, and many are against. In fact, like, legalizing marijuana is, is, is has popular. become very popular Incredibly among like, popular. all segments of the population, so. And I think it would help us address some of the issues we've been talking about. Like you said, the opioid crisis, uh, the opioid crisis, the way our criminal system is, both those things, we could better address that if we didn't have wheat, marijuana being illegal and right. states followed suit, you could see them better regulated, create a market. They could not only make money, which we all know is important to our government, but then they could also try and, you know, intervene from some of these problems and these opioid issues and these fentanyl issues that they're so concerned about. They could, they could better have a control over that yeah. if they actually got in the business. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, Vice President Kamala Harris was certainly gleeful to announce the Biden administration's change in policy. The bottom line there is nobody should have to go to jail for smoking weed. 
Well, that's interesting. But who could forget Tulsi Gabbard's infamous scorched-earth approach to Kamala Harris during the 2020 primaries? Now, Senator Harris says she's proud of her record as a prosecutor and that she'll be a prosecutor president. But I'm deeply concerned about this record. There are too many examples to cite, but she put over 1,500 people in jail for marijuana violations and then laughed about it when she was asked if she ever smoked marijuana. She blocked evidence. She blocked evidence that would have freed an innocent man from death row until the courts forced her to do so. She kept people in prison beyond their sentences to use them as cheap labor for the state of California. And she fought to keep cash bail system in place that impacts poor people in the worst kind of way. And it's not really as if she's ever, uh, Kamala Harris has ever like written off those policies or apologized yeah. for them or explained what changed in her thinking yeah. because it really wasn't thinking. It yeah. was just, it's not, there's Correct. no ideology to her, right? Yeah, I, you know, listen, and I don't, I don't think this is just true of Kamala. I think this is true of many of our politicians. Oh, they, of course. Yeah. They, they do what they believe is popular, unfortunately, for most of our lifetime. And to some degree, it's, it's changed a lot. There's a lot of pushback to what conventionally was thought of as tough on crime. But in not fairness, because I'm highly critical. You know I don't have nothing positive to say about Kamala's prosecutorial record, and I am not going to defend it, but I'm going to say just in the very least, she was in the company of, of a world of politicians that just... Everyone. Exactly. She was. That being said, if time, times have changed, and if you are now changing your positions because, you know, your base, your party, the country does not feel that way anymore, that's fine. I want you to do better. I'd rather you change and make change than yeah. be dogmatic about something just so you don't have to, um, you know, wipe the egg yeah. off your face, but it's better to acknowledge it. Exactly. When, when people criticize politicians for flip-flopping, I always say, well, which way did they yeah. flip? Yeah. I, I want, want you to change. I want them to flip in my direction. Yes. And then and then we can and I want to incentivize that. That's, that's why I didn't come out here, you know, talking about. Yeah, because Biden's track record's not great when it yeah. comes to things like this. Right. And neither is Kamala's. But I would much rather they try and make positive change than just stay stay the same way. So I'm going to incentivize that by not giving them a lot of grief at the top of this morning. All right. Well, coming up next, I'll tell you what's on my radar. Stay tuned for that. So, Robbie, what's on your radar? Well, PayPal is a company that facilitates financial transactions. It owns Venmo, which is an app that many people, myself included, have used to pay each other for services. The company effectively creates a digital wallet where you can store money, like in a bank account, and use it to complete financial transactions. Peter Thiel and Elon Musk, billionaire entrepreneurs who have both talked about the importance of free speech and civil liberties, well, both of them have been involved in the company at various stages. All right, a few days ago, PayPal rolled out an updated user agreement. That agreement prohibits the sending, posting, or publication of any messages, content, or materials that present a risk to user safety or well-being or contain misinformation. The policy notes that what counts as misinformation is at PayPal's sole discretion, and the penalty for violating this policy is a withdrawal of $2,500 from the offending user's account. Now, many people don't keep that much money in their account, but some do. And the new policy says that PayPal can deduct $2,500 from your account per infraction. So someone who spreads quite a bit of so-called misinformation could stand to lose a great deal of money. 
This is obviously incredibly worrying. For one thing, efforts to police misinformation have been prone to significant error and significant overreach. Governments, media organizations, and tech platforms have all made serious attempts to limit the spread of misinformation by cracking down on speech that they thought was wrong or dangerous. But time and time again, these measures have resulted in censorship of legitimate discourse. Facebook, for instance, took great pains to prevent users from theorizing that COVID-19 emerged from a lab. Twitter faced pressure from the Biden administration to purge accounts that criticized the mainstream consensus on vaccines, masks, and other subjects. YouTube's policies prohibited content creators from spreading so-called COVID misinformation, including the statement, masks don't work, and COVID is no more dangerous than the flu. Now, some of those statements have more validity than others, in my opinion, but none of them are considered outside the bounds of acceptable conversation any longer because things have changed. That which the misinformation gatekeepers termed misinformation is now just information, which makes you question the wisdom of punishing people for spreading it. And the government's so-called misinformation experts have performed no better than media organizations or social media platforms. Remember Nina Jankowicz, who was chosen as director of the Department of Homeland Security's Disinformation Governance Board? Well, Jankowicz was given the job of policing disinformation at the highest levels of elite law enforcement and national intelligence, and yet she was someone who had wrongly flagged the New York Post Hunter Biden laptop story as Russian disinformation. It wasn't. We all know that. Today, we know the laptop was real. So was the story. Okay, so back to PayPal. So there is some good news here. The company has said in a statement that the update well, was a mistake. Quote, an AUP notice recently went out in error that included incorrect information, a PayPal spokesperson told Fox Business. PayPal is not fining people for misinformation, and this language was never intended to be inserted in our policy. End quote. So you can take that for what it's worth. Maybe the update was a genuine error, or maybe PayPal simply received so much criticism over the last few days that they're changing course. But, this is an important but, as Eugene Volokh, a law professor and one of my colleagues at Reason Magazine, he points out that PayPal does still have a policy, was already on the books, and states that you may not use the PayPal service for activities that relate to the promotion of hate, violence, racial, or other forms of intolerance that is discriminatory or the financial exploitation of a crime. Now, violating that policy can also result loss of 2,500 bucks. Volokh warns that sharply criticizing a religion or government officials, maybe, well, that could be construed as the promotion of hate and could theoretically violate that policy. Sounds like a good reason to think twice about using PayPal, writes Volokh. I've just withdrawn the $1,000 I have in my PayPal account, and I'm starting the process of disentangling myself from the service to the extent possible. That sounds like a good plan to me. So I don't know. What do you think about this, Alimi? Pretty crazy, right? Yeah. Like, this is not being adjudicated in a court of law. This is just a, this is just a company. So if you've given them this money, I mean, it's, it's your money. They're saying they're just going to they're, they're just gonna deduct. Now, they're saying they're not doing the misinformation thing. Yeah. But if you read the fine print, the, there are other grounds for, because um, what we term hate, yeah. you know. Listen, I, I understand we are in a time of mis misinformation on both sides. I think there's misinformation all around. No one reads anything. A lot of clickbait, a lot of headlines. I think that goes true all around the internet, but you know, I am I, I'm against any any boards, anybody trying to 
be the gatekeeper or the deciding factor on right. who censors it or who figures out what is misinformation or what isn't. Also, information evolves. Um, so when you decide, it might be, it might not, you know, the same reason. So I'm right. actually on your side with that general reasoning. Plus, I'm just always wary of anything that seems like it's going to take us into big brother territory. But I don't get this in particular because... Am I misunderstanding how PayPal works? Like, that's not a, PayPal's not a social app where we're spreading information. Like, how does it work? Or is it intended to apply right. against companies? Is it like if companies or organizations have a PayPal account and they do something on their separate platforms, will they be punished? How is it working? Because right. I guess that's what I want to know. So my, what I gather, that's a great question. What I yeah. gather from it is that they intended to, and again, they've said they're not doing the misinformation yeah. thing. That was a mistake. But what I would have suspected that to kind of be run, you get in trouble with that if you were, right, if you were Venmoing or something yeah. uh, or uh, financial transactions on PayPal for uh, to like an organization uh -huh. that is promoting something that is t deemed misinformation like on that. COVID, like some kind of so if you're, you know, you're anti-vax organization, probably. So, you know... Uh that's that's probably a no for me. Yeah. That's going to be a no for me on either way, right? Listen, yeah. you know what my feelings are on the other side of the aisle, the belief systems. Yeah, I, but I still believe people have the right to think what they want, engage in that, support what organizations they want, barring it's not something like the client. Well, there's just kind of a presumption that mm -hmm. that's not like a company like this stays in its lanes. Right. This is a financial transaction company. Like, yeah, I, you know, if you right. if you commit a financial crime, I guess you can get you're going to get thrown off the platform. But they're not. It is. It is increasingly though. These large um, tech companies are 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 trying to do. We've seen this with uh, what with DuckDuckGo, with yeah. uh, with GoFundMe, with other right. you know the the kinds of reaching into the. Well, we don't actually approve of this kind of financial activity, yeah. so we don't. And look, they can do that, but they should. They, they first of all, they need to be upfront. I think they need to be upfront. Like, look, this is a plat. This is a platform. This is a service only for, I guess, liberals or something who agree. Yeah. I mean, that's that's the thing. It seems like they're being deliberately vague around this. I can only right. imagine in my mind if they have this policy in place. I don't think there's anything wrong with a policy that says you're not allowed to engage in hate and crimes and discrimination and things that are just universally. We have pretty much those rules anywhere and anything uh, that you agree to. I don't think that's a problem. Finding people is a different conversation. Stealing. 20 $2,500 for me is a cause to fight. Right, it's your money. Right. <laughs> that, you, that, you, that you would have, under this policy, I guess, foolishly just let no, them No, we have to fight. Have no, we have, we, yeah, we, yeah. We, have, we have to fight. If yeah. you take $2,500 for me, we have to fight um, regardless. And because I, I think, it, and also, how how much is intention being being incorporated into right. this? Because you can miss you can spread misinformation by mistake. People, you tweet out the right. wrong thing. You say, oh no, I didn't. You know, you correct right. this, you change this. But a twenty five hundred dollar hit, which is why it led me to believe maybe this is about going after organizations, which I think that is a little bit and, different. But than and it's just changed people. so many. You know, we, you you used to be you were not allowed to say under social various social media policies you couldn't say uh, the vaccines don't stop the spread of COVID. Mm -hmm. but now we all know that's essentially true. It, it stops. You from getting very ill, but it's not, it's not hold the vaccines are not really holding back cases. Like, you that's, know, that's, I am, a, that's not a contested I, thing. I can't get into that. I am not, I am not qualified to pretend no. to be a COVID expert. I do know, I will say this, this is the only thing I could give is my personal anecdote is that I'm vaccinated, boosted, and I ain't never had COVID. Not, no, one, huh? not one time, Robbie, and I don't know if I'm built different, but uh, <laughs> <laughs> I might be pro-vaccine. <laughs> I'm, I'm, no, I'm pro-vaccine as well, yeah. but it's just, uh, it, it's, it's, uh, they were they were yeah, presented the, the good they were they were what, what you said they were it's, doing not you specifically yeah. what the experts said no, no I get it didn't pan out I think that's a perfect example of when you look at COVID in specific just because yeah. I think COVID is when we first started hearing misinformation misinformation just twenty four seven and we've seen the COVID. 
I don't even know where the COVID dialogue is at at yeah. this point. It's changed so much in both, like, right. who knows, right? Who knows what's true, what's valid? Because just the other day I said to my friend, oh, I think I need to get boosted, right? I need to get boosted every six months. He was like, no, nah, that's, that's done. It doesn't, doesn't work. I'm like, what? But when did it change? You didn't update me. So I do think it has changed. I think that's a perfect example, Robbie, on Your how friend's got to look changed. out for using PayPal. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he might, he might catch a bill. But if you have $2,500 sitting in your PayPal to go, I, I don't know if you get the, the most of my sympathy, yeah. but I would still fight regardless. Take it out. Take it out. <laughs> More rising right after this. Hunter Biden's legal troubles may finally be catching up to him, according to a Washington Post report. Federal investigators said they have sufficient evidence to charge the president's son for tax crimes and allegedly falsifying documents on a gun-related purchase. Federal prosecutors have been investigating Hunter Biden about his business dealings abroad, specifically those in China and Kazakhstan, as well as his payment from Ukrainian natural gas company Burisma. David Weiss, who leads the Delaware U.S. Attorney's Office and was appointed by former President Trump, will decide whether to bring forth charges against Hunter Biden. Hmm. So the issue here is that, okay, look, uh, he deserves due process and mm -hmm. the investigation should proceed. Um, you know, tax crimes, a gun-related thing. That sounds like the kind of stuff that, like, any prosecutor could get anyone for. Mm -hmm. you know, when they look hard enough, I mean, you know this from yeah. the work you do, if they look hard enough, they find something wrong with your taxes, and then your attempt to defend yourself is, so, uh, is, uh, is you know, violating is perjury or obstruction of justice or something. The underreporting your taxes is the charge for I want you, but I don't know how else to get you. Yes, exactly. Mm -hmm. And... I don't really, we don't care if he like, he should be allowed to purchase a gun. I support the Second <laughs> Amendment. What we care about with Hunter Biden is whether he was using, mm -hmm. leveraging his last name and his inf potential influence over his father and was trading that to foreign governments. Mm -hmm. And if there's financial impropriety there, if he was influence peddling. Yeah. That's the potentially um, far, re large criminal potential enterprise that he was involved in, that we want answers to that. If it's just, well, there's something wrong with his taxes, um, that will, that's, that's not enough. Yeah. For those of us who think there might be something there, something more to, the, to Hunter Biden, something actually under like very seriously criminal mm. in what he said in the, the messages when he says to people, like the big guy, you know, referring to his father, that he has the big guy's ear, that's... The, that's the worrisome thing. The, the, so, the having, the having his daddy's ear, that's the worry. Well, that's the worrisome having his comment? daddy's ear and, and speaking to foreign governments. As and, opposed to the last companies. president whose children were in the administration? No, they're, they're not, not going to defend them. <laughs> no, no, I don't have a single nice thing to say about the Trump children. But uh, that, but, but, okay, but the mainstream media has been relentlessly critical of the Trump children and the influence that they have and how they have used that. Uh, Jared Kushner, Saudi mm -hmm. Arabia, et cetera, uh, would deservedly so. We're critical of that as well on the mm -hmm. show. But with Hunter, but the question is, what about Hunter Biden? Is it the same? Is he doing? Was he up to the same things? And that is a question Probably. the media has had much less interest in. In answer, forget answering, and even asking. Right? They didn't even want you to ask the question. They banned. Uh, they colluded with tech companies and the government itself. The intelligence officials all saying. Nothing to see here. Don't look at this. Oh, Russia wants you to think this. I guess here are my, all my, my uh, complicated thoughts on the topic. 
First of all, I think this is a politics of distraction. That's just the truth, right? It's not that I don't think there's anything valid there or that Hunter Biden is guilty of having done something wrong. It's not that. I think Hunter Biden is probably guilty of the exact kind of behaviors most of his contemporaries are. And I think a lot of the people that are leading this charge against him and all these Republican um, officials that are constantly clamoring and using his name know that. And I think that I think it's disingenuous, right? And don't get me wrong, I'm not somebody who jumps out the window to defend Biden, but I just think that there are far more serious things we can do than constantly using this son uh, to attack him and go after him. That being said, if your position is, I'm always very critical of Democrats like Biden and like Nancy Pelosi and these people who come out with these tough on crime-like positions, and we're very uh, pro that when it comes to other people. But when it comes to their own family members, they're quick to, you know, protect them and hide them and not want them to experience the same mm -hmm. kind of way to the criminal system. That being said, this is the kind of system we have, where uh, rich white people and people in, in positions of power and the president's son, despite the fact that there probably is sufficient evidence to charge him, we might not see it. And even if we do, we're not going to—I would be able to bet good money that I got that he's not going to do any jail time or anything serious happen if we even saw charges, he's going to get a fine because that's what happens to people in this position. So I think if you want to be critical of how they're handling uh, Hunter Biden or the fact that he hasn't been charged or we feel like there's collusion, you have to be critical of the entire system that yeah. protects people like Hunter Biden. And that, that requires you to extend the same kind of criticism and focus you've put on Biden to the other characters and actors. Well, that but beat. I feel like I need an actual, I need an investigation that, that, I need to know the scope of what he actually did because yes, if it's just what is, drugs or buying a gun or something, then no, of course I don't want him to face jail time. I don't think that's I don't my think thing. We've been, a, we've been on a, on a Hunter Biden witch hunt for years now. Every time we turn in, what yeah. we got? Uh, laptop, oh, he underreported on his taxes, something he wasn't, yeah. there wasn't quite all the information when he purchased the gun. That's what we got. That's what we got. It's giving witch hunt. Well, but it, it took a long time for the media to even like allow you to discuss. I mean, you couldn't but share, that's my you point. literally Why couldn't would, share the If story. we didn't even really even have. So we slow walked it. But that's my point about something being a witch hunt. If we didn't even really have it, we're still here trying to, you know, get information. What they think they've got sufficient evidence for is just something that quite frankly is not that. Does it do it for you? Does it, is it, is it giving you? Well, I mean, I, I feel about it the same way I feel about the influence peddling going on in government, you know, finding out, mm -hmm. you know, Nancy Pelosi's husband playing yeah. the stock, you know, profiting yeah. hugely from, you know, stocks. She doesn't want to ban, she doesn't want yeah. to prohibit lawmakers from uh, trading stocks. They're the Republican congressman, uh, former uh, the Georgia uh, right. senator and and uh, the other guy whose name escapes me, who, you know, they come out of a meeting about how bad COVID is going to be, right. first calls to their broker. That kind of corruption, that's right. influence peddling. That's, yes. I have a, you know, my, uh, I have a famous spouse, I have a spouse in Congress or a brother or something yes. or a father. Yes. And I'm allowed to profit. That That is, it is obscene. It but, is corrupt right. and it's gross. And but that's what I want to know entire, Hunter Biden was doing. Yeah, but this is my point. Thing, it's true yeah. of our entire system. We have a system in place. We have a criminal system. Where where, where we disproportionately police, profile, prosecute, and incarcerate black and brown people. We know that. And we have a system that actively protects and conceals white people, period, let alone of, of financial influence or importance. So it's, to me, again, are we going to be critical of an entire system that allows, there's a reason why federal prosecutors have the, the discretion that they have, so that they can avoid charging their friends and people that they know and people of import. And that's why we see this here. It's when you look at things like even, let's take an example, RICO charges. RICO, RICO what it actually means is a million underlying charges, just regular things. Honestly, it should be a conversation about double jeopardy, but you can charge people with RICO. But every year, as they continue to add new laws that qualify under this, they make exceptions for financial crimes and things that usually go to these kinds 
lives of players and white collar crimes, and they have an option. Under RICO, uh, prosecutors can either, they can criminally pursue you or they can civilly fine you. And you know what they do? Civil fines and those kinds of things for white people and people of importance, and then for, for, for black people, RICO charges and incarceration. So I say again, the focus on Hunter Biden, yes. Is there a system in place that's benefiting Hunter Biden? Yes. Is Hunter Biden unlikely to receive any consequence or any punishment for what he did because of who he is and who he knows? Yes. But what I'm saying is, if you're not going to change an entire system or address or condemn the system that does that for rich white folk and people like him overall, like many of the people that are co complaining and focusing on Hunter Biden, I don't really want to hear you saying too much about Hunter Biden because it's well, not should, genuine. Okay, well, we should change the whole system. Mm -hmm. But we should also have accountability mm -hmm. for the president. Oh, for, for Hunter. Yeah, well, for mm -hmm. everyone. For, for, for this thing. Uh, also think. for uh, mm -hmm. the Republican senators and for the House Speaker and everybody who is profiting off, uh, you know, access they have well, to... It it, Robbie, if you want to gather up Congress, I'm all for it. Let's do it. I do want to gather them up. Let's Hunter Biden has, by the way, denied any wrongdoing, saying in 2019, quote, in retrospect, I think there was poor judgment on my part. I know I did nothing wrong at all, but it was poor judgment to be in the middle of something. Uh, it's a swamp in many ways. More rising after this. Uvalde has suspended its entire school district police department after months of nationwide backlash. This comes just as families of victims from the massacre conducted an 11-day sit-in in front of the school district police station. The mass suspension comes quickly after the superintendent of the Uvalde School District announced that he is retiring, and an officer who responded to the shooting was fired for not bringing her vest or rifle when she was one of the first officers to enter the school on the day of the massacre. Mm. All right, so a uh, uh, refresher for the viewers to what, you know, what went wrong here. This was the horrible, horrific mass shooting. Um, so many children and a few teachers died uh, when the 19. shooter came and uh, barricaded himself in a classroom, although now we know that the classroom was maybe not even yeah. locked. Police, so many police showed up, tons of police, and they waited and waited and waited and waited as the... Over two dozen law enforcement agencies yes, as children, as children still alive in the classroom with... with bullet wounds, calling 911 saying, please come in and save us. We are dying. They waited. The one officer, uh, his wife yeah. was the teacher in there dying, and he moved to, toward the door, and they held him back and took him away. Parents outside, desperate to get in. Um, everyone trying to do something except the police. And I'm glad you made that point because that is a beautiful, the, the officer that was fired, so that officer was found on body cam footage that in conjunction to not bringing their rifle and their vest inside even though they had it and they just left it and went inside unarmed. Then they go outside where they stayed for the entire the entirety of the incident and they're heard on their body worn camera footage saying, saying, if my children were in there, you could bet I wouldn't be out here. That's all I know. <laughs> That's their job. It's their job. It's, it's so, yeah. It, it's, it, it's, you know what's, you know what is unfortunate? When you have people like me who are incredibly critical of the police, they should not. It's the kind of thing I, w I, in I would have to infer, right? I infer. I've said a million times, it was very clear that these officers did not care. It was negligence. They made an executive decision just to disregard the lives of the children. We know that based on all the evidence that we know. But to hear it, but to hear it on camera, to consciously know, to stand out there as an officer, to have, it's your job to protect these people. You were there on the scene to respond to it. You have the weaponry, you have the shields, you have the protection, but just to make a conscious decision, I'm not gonna do it, and I know that if it were my kid, I would. Stood out there and consciously 
obviously just looked at those parents. In fact, not just looked at the parents, as we know, the parents were berated, uh, tackled, arrested, pepper sprayed, yes. experienced nothing but abuse as their children are being murdered inside. Yeah, it, and this is a school district that has its own police department. Right. You would think. To, and, ha, and has had training. The yes. department had, had training to deal yes. with this exact scenario. We all, I guess, the, you know, the police department that initially responded to um, Columbine 20 years ago, yes. right? They waited. We didn't know what to yeah. do. We didn't know what this new kind of psychotic mass shooter type, or the, yeah. they're not taking hostages. They're just there to kill people. So back then, the police waited. Right. They didn't know what to do. Now we know. We have seen, we've had, we know. unfortunately, several so instances many like this. We've had and these. The, the training is for police, including for these police, Rush the shooter. Do not wait. And you don't wait for reinforcements. You don't wait for backup. You, th you throw yourself and they know at the that. shooter. And, they and know if that. you get shot, the guy behind you, maybe he gets a shot. And not only shooter. do they know that. They know that. They had a training. They had their most recent training maybe a month before this. But additionally, again, over 12 different law enforcement agencies showed up. So even if, let's mm -hmm. pretend that that one, the school's uh, um, police department, was just unprepared or they didn't know or they haven't, didn't have this wherewithal, they had backup. And people show up with tactical shields that said, this police department actively prevented them, would not allow them to go in and help the children. So it, it, right. this is the least that could be done. And I don't want to, and I don't want to downplay the win of having this uh, school, the, this police department suspended just because I read all the commentary from the families themselves who did the sit-in and who have advocated for mm -hmm. this and this is a win for them. And so I don't in any way want to downplay that, but this is the least of what should be being done. An entire fourth grade class was massacred months ago. And we're just now only in response as the school, the, the semester's already started mm -hmm. and parents have to sit at the parents of their children who died have to sit in and beg you to right. all these people at accountable and what you say you're going to conduct an investigation what more investigation what investigation hasn't been conducted what don't we know what do we need to know more that that you need to hold these people responsible for what more do you need to know other than they stood there and allowed a fourth grade class to be massacred Conservatives should view it as a because you know this gets into the, you know, the, the there's some reflexive support for law enforcement mm -hmm. among some Republicans. View I always say to view it as a it, these are government employees. It's yeah. a government employee accountability issue. Just like you would want you know you don't like what uh, certain teachers are doing or certain university administrators. Or just just this in the same way or IRS agents the same yeah. way you think reckless government employees because they work for us they're paid for by our tax dollars they should be held accountable when there's wrongdoing. Yeah. Yeah. And that go, that should go the same for the police. I and this is a just a crystal clear example of utter catastrophic failure on the part of people who work for us, Absolutely. who are supported by our tax dollars. Absolutely. I think there is too much resistance to, to being critical of police when they've acted poorly. Let me say this. As a person who was an abolitionist and who was critical of the police across the board. Yeah, and I am not an abolitionist. I know. We know, <laughs> we know Robbie. The streets know. Not okay. <laughs> but as a person who was an abolitionist and is incredibly critical of the police, I find that if your response to me is, no, we should have faith in this system, that all these incidents, you can't deny the fact that there are miscarriages of justice, that police um, commit a lot of harm, that people are killed by the police, that police allow people to be killed. You can't deny incidents like this. So if you still want to support the police, you need to take the position that this is a mistake or these outliers or that these quote unquote bad apples. And if that's going to be your response, you have to be willing and prepared to correct the system or change it in mm -hmm. some way. The problem comes into play. If I tell you, if we have a policing system and I say, listen, we have a police state, uh, uh, police are killing people over a thousand people each year. Police are negligent. We have, uh, ever since Columbine, we have put over a hundred thousand police officers in schools across the country and it hasn't prevented school shootings. If I say all of this and I make this argument and your response is we need to maintain these things, we need these things, but you're seeing all these evidence of how it's not working effective, effectively, your position 
conversation has to be, we've got to make it effective. We've got to change it. We have to hold these officers responsible. If you're not saying that police in, in and of itself are completely inefficient, you don't want the position that we should completely take yeah. police out of the schools. You have to at least acknowledge the police that responded to this school. I agree, but now, Alina, you have to go tell John Oliver that I agree with you on that. <laughs> you I, saw there was a, we were featured on yes, a John Oliver clip. I will you tell and I, him. from uh, your last appearance on the show, one of your last appearances yes. uh, in, in the chair, and uh, I, right, I'm portrayed as this like naive fool who doesn't understand that the, <laughs> the police do things wrong. Like, if you see any of my other reporting, you would not think that. I am so sorry, he, but you know, listen. It's not your fault. He, baby, did, he called me baby Ryan Seacrest. Ryan Seacrest is a national treasure. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we gotta go. More Rising right after this. The state of Illinois will do away with cash bill entirely in January 2023 as part of new legislation. According to NBC Chicago, under the Safety Act signed earlier this year, detention only shall be imposed when it is determined the defendant poses a specific, real, and present threat to a person or has high likelihood of willful flight. This does not apply to defendants who are charged with violent crimes, such as first-degree murder and criminal sexual assault. They will still face pretrial detention. Illinois Democrats acknowledged tweaks could be made to the language of the Safety Act after the legislation was attacked on social media as the purge law. Governor Pritzker blamed public outcry on people misrepresenting the law. So what should I think about this? You're the expert, Alimi. Listen, this is actually pretty pretty modest bill reform, and, uh, and something I want to point out that you don't hear a lot of coverage of. Whenever you see places like New York City or Chicago or L.A. want to do bail reform, it's this immediate attack, it's this completely leftist, radical idea when you want to get rid of cash bail. But Republican Governor Christie got rid of cash bail in its entirety in New Jersey in 2014, and it has been wildly successful and did not receive the same kind of fanfare. And actually, this is positive for the reasons that people don't think about. Constantly, when people talk about bail, it's a public safety thing. They, they always respond, oh, we need to be safe. These people are so dangerous. First of all, if you look at places like New York City and New Jersey, places that have already started getting rid of cash bail and implementing bail reform, it has not changed the numbers of rearrest a while out. So that's first and foremost. But second, the legal purpose of bail is to make sure somebody returns to court. That's it. There isn't a public safety aspect or component. What it is is the court explores, do I think this? I'm going to set cash bail because somehow we have made this connection that money has a relation on whether or not you return to court. And that's just not true. The vast majority of the people in the criminal system live well beneath the poverty line. It turns out, actually, most people arrested in our criminal system make, made less than $12,000 annually uh, pre-arrest. So I want us to have an understanding of how poor the people are with this system. But what new, uh, in Chicago, what they're going to do now is instead of just setting cash bail, people can still be detained pre-trial. That's an important point. They think this is just a free-for-all, but no. Violent crime, felonies, murder, right. all the things you see people sensationalizing about this purge law that doesn't exist online, all of those things will still make you eligible. Why are people calling it the purge law? Law. Because that is the it's that that is the propaganda that is no. before any time when any, any before bail reform goes into effect we have to deal with this the same thing we saw in New York City where before it even starts they've already started attacking it the police departments come out and blame it for crime spikes that that, that haven't happened they say they can't arrest people because it is bail reform and they fearmonger the public about it so what happens is once the public gets so outraged by it, and they're like the purge they think people can't be arrested because the purge literally means crime for the next 24 hours, you know, crime is, is a free-for-all. I get it. Right? So when people do that, that allows for rollback. So before it even goes into place, you get real rollback. So what happened in New York City, we got bail reform at the top of 2020, January. Then they did the same thing in the media, and then they rolled it back months later. Oh, so what stops law enforcement or the court system from detaining people when, you know, we see these videos of crazy people 
stabbing or beating people on the streets of New York, and we find out that, oh, they've been arrested a bunch of times, they've been in and out a bunch of times, but they're, and they're charged with something, but they're out right now. Why are they not, why are those people, when there's like video evidence of them beating somebody's head in, why are they not detained? Well, first of all, we live in a country where you are entitled to a trial, you're entitled to have evidence presented against you, you're also entitled to have defenses and justifications like mental illness, insanity, all these are things that you're allowed to present. Our cash bill system, pretrial detention, is not supposed to be used to bypass that entire process. I I get that. Right? So that's one. Two, when it comes to, they sensationalize cases with like, homeless people and mentally ill people or people with large rap sheets. Let me tell you what that looks like in application as a public defender. If you arraign somebody, you arraign somebody for these usually mentally ill people, homeless people that are targeted and arrested regularly, what happens is at arraignments they say to you, because your client's homeless or whatever it is, they want to put them in jail just for that reason. They use that as a reason to set bail on them. But they will say to them, hey, we're going to set bail on you or pleaded a charge. You could plead a charge now when you said time served. And so this person gets out, gets out because they plead, they took the charge, they took mm. the conviction, even though otherwise they could have gone to trial. There probably wouldn't have been evidence against them. There's a long process. But instead, they take it so that they could be free. Now you have one criminal conviction. Now you're home, they're arrest you again for something, something petty, the same thing, and they keep doing that. So the next thing you know, you have homeless people, people addicted to drugs, people mentally ill, and all these things that have these large uh, criminal rap sheets that are just for stupid, petty, trivial offenses. They never got their day in court. And it's then not always trivial offenses. It's often, it's often as, as somebody who represents them, yes, I've represented over a thousand people, and I can't find you this raving lunatic with these long rap sheets. That's what it is. When you see a long criminal rap sheet like that, it's evidence of something else. And also, I want to say this. This recidivism and what we point to, whenever we, we talk about recidivism or people who have been rearrested or people who are in and out of the criminal system, we use that as an attack on people who are opponents of our criminal system. Uh, and that doesn't make sense. If we have a system in place, the only system we have in place for addressing crime and stopping crime and preventing crime is our criminal system we have now with incarceration and mass incarceration. And you're saying to me now, all these people that you peddle in and out of the system are continuing to do the same things. All of the issues, all of the crime, it's not being alleviated in any way. This is evidence of the system not working effectively to address those things. Well, I mean, some people would say it's evidence of the system not locking enough people up, right? If, if they're out and they're engaged in more criminal behavior, then there are, you don't have enough incarceration, right? That's what some, I mean, that's what some people will say. If you have people so, on the streets, who are not just crazy, but like actively stabbing people and attacking Who people. Where? And, okay. and it happens. We see the videos. Yes. It incidents, does incidents of something is the majority of things. This is just the truth. There are over 2 million people that are incarcerated in America. Yeah. The majority, over 80% of cases, criminal cases, over 80% nationwide are misdemeanors, traffic offenses, and nonviolent crime. That's just the truth. Yeah. So taking these outliers and incidents of, of, of mental illness or these things and using that as justification to have this uh, expansive in, uh, prison prison system and mass incarceration just doesn't support that. But one, and two, I also want to say this consistently, consistently, even within our conversation, even within the media, what they do, they acknowledge that these people are mentally unwell. We're not present. We're not pretending like these are people that are fully sane in their faculties or have the resources. No, we're acknowledging that these are people that are unwell. These are the people that are least resourced um, by our society and our community. But yet we keep advocating instead of addressing their mental health issues or why these people on the street or why they don't have the resources to get the care that they need so that they don't act like this. We keep just saying, throw incarceration at it. Oh, just throw them away, throw them well, in jail. Well, we've had this, I've had this debate on the show with other guests. And and I'll say, okay, they're mentally unwell. Sure, they need to be. They need to take antipsychotic medicine, and they need to be 
put in a, a facility until they are no longer crazy and no longer drug addicted. But that, so that doesn't need to be a prison. I'm not saying it needs to be a prison, but they need to be somewhere other than the street. And okay. that, and then I get a lot of resistance when I start talking about that. So oh. that, what do you say to the fact that the, a person with mental health issues in America is three to three, three to four times more likely to end up in jail or prison at some point in time in their life, right? We have over 30% of people that are currently incarcerated are struggling with not just mental health issues, serious, what is diagnosed as serious mental health issues. They don't get these resources. They don't I get know, this I help. I see them, I see them on the using, streets here and in New York. Exactly. We are using, instead of putting money and resources and energy into actually having an infrastructure for helping people with mental health issues and dealing with them in that way. Instead, we keep using prison and mass incarceration. And let me just say this, that only exacerbates it. If you take somebody that doesn't have resources, you take somebody that's mentally unwell, you take somebody that's struggling, you're taking somebody that's going to respond to something with violence, and then you put them in an environment where you will literally force them to be around violence, to fight, to defend for themselves, to be exposed well, to sexual assault, to be exposed to rape, to be exposed to solitary confinement, to be exposed to trauma. What do you think happens to this person you've already diagnosed as crazy or a problem or a danger to us? Because they're not going to stay. This is something we need to take into consideration. They don't stay there. All right, people have to, you can't just, every little thing, you can't just lock people up for the rest of their lives, the entire country, two million people, everybody that has a mental health issue, you cannot just lock them away and put them That's away so forever. I, so they go back to the community. And when they go back to the community with these exacerbated problems, what then? I just don't accept that leaving them on the street is the humane thing. Okay, so do. what do you want to do? Well, I, I said I want to put them in facilities and make them take Okay, so then what's the response to the fact that they're not doing that? Instead, instead of putting the money to allow for those mental health facilities, we yeah, are putting right. the money into police. There needs to be some coercion to it. It can't just be voluntary. You can't. Just, we, there needs to be more, like actually putting them in these places. Doesn't have to be prison, but we, we can't. It can't just be left to people who are suffering, who are drug addicted, who are violent, who are thrashing, who are like. If you see people on the street, it's. I, I'm not comfortable just letting them have have t like. Thrashing violently, we have to stop. psychotically. First of all, we have to stop again. Stop using these individual outliers, some of the most extreme cases, to be representative of one. Everybody is in the criminal system, but two, representative of everybody with mental health issues. That that one period with mental health issues, but two, people with mental health issues that end up in the criminal system because they are not all the particular the the case you see on the post are highlighted there. That's just not the truth. And if we keep talking about mental health people with mental health issues as though they are an entirely separate entity, they are different from us. They are. That's why we end up in a society that others them and is not particularly concerned or enthusiastic about helping them because we've already dehumanized these people and disregarded them. So I think well, to be mindful of that. Gotta leave it there. We'll have more rising right after this. Well, Kanye West's Twitter and Instagram accounts have been restricted after the superstar rapper posted comments that some described as anti-Semitic. Twitter told CBS News that the rapper was locked out of his account due to a violation of Twitter's policies. Twitter did not specify what specific policies had been broken, but the account restriction came after West posted a tweet in which he threatened to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people on Saturday. In the tweet, which has been subsequently removed, West also said, the funny thing is I can't actually be anti-Semitic because black people are actually Jewish also. On Instagram, Wes shared a since-deleted post that included a screenshot of a text conversation with rapper Sean Diddy Combs, in which Wes suggested Combs was being controlled by Jews. Wes wrote, I'm going to use you as an example to show the Jewish people that told you to call me that no one can threaten or influence me. Yeah, so the, the specific tweet was, um, you guys have, uh, I'm going to go DEFCON 3 on Jewish people. You guys have toyed with me and tried to blackball anyone 
uh, whoever opposes your agenda. And, and so, so Kanye West is kind of back in the news, or back in, he's always in the news, obviously, back in political news because he did um, a big interview with Tucker Carlson, mm -hmm. um, of all people. And, uh, and, and then there was like the House, I don't know if we have that tweet, the House Judiciary, the GOP House Judiciary Twitter account tweeted like, uh, Elon, Kanye, Trump, like those are our people, sort of. So Kanye being kind of claimed as a conservative <laughs> um, uh, celebrity right now, in, in part because of, and then what he said about abortion, which I think we have. Let's play that. The lanyard's still on from it, and there's a photograph on it. What is that? It's a photograph of a baby's ultrasound. Why is that? And that you designed that? Yes. Why? What does that mean? Uh, it just represents life. I'm pro-life. Boy, so you wear it on a badge. What, what kind of response do you get? And, and good, amen, I agree. I don't care about people's responses. I care about the fact that there's more black babies being aborted than born in New York City at this point. That 50% of black death in America is abortion. So I really don't care about people's responses. I perform for an audience of one, and that's God. All right, so to return to the, I guess, the actual hook of this, the suspension from Twitter, I guess that tweet violates a policy. Um, I mean, it's. I, well, I agree that it is vague, at least maybe more than vaguely anti-Semitic. It speaks to some anti-Semitic tropes. I don't know that it is more malicious or hateful than tons of other stuff you can encounter on the platform all the time. I want us to stop being in a world where we acknowledge that something is hate speech or something is hateful. The community has expressed that it is hateful, and then we, you know. We try and, and, and water it down or, you know, compare it to other hateful things or how this hateful thing was handled versus this. It's hateful. This is the thing. It's not—people are calling it anti-Semitic. Specifically, Jewish people themselves are calling it anti-Semitic because it is, all right? Do you know who's the premier authority on anti-Semitism? The Jewish people. I'm going to let that as a, as a community. And also, it's a pretty vile, very clearly that, filled with— it's not only anti-Semitic, but it's absolutely stupid. Um, and in response to Kanye saying, you know, he doesn't care about what people have to say about it, he cares a lot. All of this is for our attention. He wants us to be speaking about it. Kanye does this on a regular basis. Listen, is Kanye incredibly talented? Yes, he is. Has Kanye made amazing music and albums? Yes, he has. Um, is Kanye mentally unwell? Yes. Is Kanye battling with mental, mental health issues? Absolutely. Do I believe that Kanye is aware of what he's doing? Absolutely. I think Kanye has made a decision, listen, Kanye is doing a two-step call, shook and jive. That's what he's doing. He's getting himself into these rooms filled with white nationalists, and he's embracing a white nationalist ideology, and anti-Semitism is in keeping with that, and that is what he consistently does. And I want to say this. Kanye does a thing. It's one thing to go be in that space and say, you could believe it a lot more. It could be a lot more genuine. If he didn't jump out of that space, he will choose a time during the year when he usually, I'm sure that something's coming. Something is coming. If an album's not coming, the release of some product is coming. Something is happening. He does this almost, I want to say every year, but at least every other year now, he has a moment where he decides, ah, what are all the super super uh, right-wing talking points. How can I ingratiate myself with those people and get myself in that room and do what I can to be legitimized to them? And then the moment, you know, things start going south in his life or he needs the black community again, all of a sudden he remembers racism. He's backpedaled. He has a whole new position because the minute he wants to be mad at Kim Kardashian in a week or two, he's going to, oh, he's a black man. The way they come after this is going to be a whole different song and dance. Kanye knows what he's doing. He is fully aware and we need to stop giving him well, as much grace as we do. Uh <laughs> I don't know that he's being a white nationalist in particular. Yeah, no, he is. I mean, in those remarks, he talked about his 
I mean, without where do you think that talking point debate and he got into a whole and where do you think that talking the, point came from? This whole idea you take a you take a party and a community of people that largely are not interested in what uh, the problems and plights of the black community, certainly not helping them or addressing that. And, you know, I know this because the black community largely talks about the issues that we have. We talk about being uh, profile. We talk about being incarcerated. We talk about our communities being un under resourced. We talk about not having money given to our, our health care, our housing, our infrastructure. But you are constantly being policed and prosecuted. You don't kind of you don't have nothing to say about that in those communities. The same Republican that Party. Is white nationalist. Uh, let me, I'm going to tell you. Well, I'm going to tell okay. you he's a white okay. nationalist. Yes, okay. I said he's embracing white nationalism. He absolutely is. Just because. Let me just say this. Racism is not just something that can be peddled by white people. If you live in a society that has white supremacist ideology or systemic racism, you can internalize that in the same way. And also, as a black person, we're aware of what it is that you can say. There's a thing called rules of racial standing, right? And it's a book called uh, Faces at the Bottom of a Well by Derek Bell. And they discuss this. As a black person, you enter these rooms, these corporate situations in white America, and you have an opportunity to be the black person that legitimizes the white talking points, the black person that is tokenized by speaking against the collective interest or the collective opinion of what is the community at large. What Kanye has done is, when it is to his advantage, he gets in these rooms and he peddles those talking points. And the abortion one in specific, that is something that right wings, right wing people and Republicans have used to pretend to to recharacterize an argument as though they are they are looking out for us. We they're a very paternalistic and and disingenuous approach. But this whole idea that oh no, we care about black people. Black people are being harmed by abortion, and that's what nonsense. It's nonsense. It's foolishness. Kanye knows what he's doing, and he does it all the time. And then he backpedals, and that's my position on that. And I've got no more grace for Kanye. I don't agree with that. I think he is a little bit kooky, and he doesn't have well-formed political ideas because he's a, he's a celebrity, and usually celebrities don't have very well-formed or consistent or smart Except he does. opinions. Except he's peddling out. The, he's not just coming with half-baked ideas he just barely heard. He is coming with specific ideology that has been peddled by a party for decades that is, are, are, are very— um, these are very entrenched, like, philosophical thought. I know that tweet thought. isn't being— I mean— the, the, the anti-Semitism that's in there, the idea that Jews, and I don't even want to engage, legitimize nonsense, but the idea that Jews control everything or Jews are blackballing and people are, that, that very so much so, that is an old anti-Semitic trope that has been pat. That is not new. Kanye didn't come up no, with that. No, 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 so no, what I'm no, saying, no, those no, are, no. he knows what he's doing. He knows what he's saying. And it's not, it's not a coincidence that, again, you go on Tucker Carlson, you go on Tucker Carlson, and now suddenly you switch your agenda to now I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to attack the Jews. I'm going to go with these um, um, known, very old anti-Semitic tropes. It's just what that is. He knows, he knows what he's doing. I think it's uh, frustrating when conservatives seize on any celebrity who mm -hmm. shows them even the slightest amount of affection mm -hmm. um, when they're in other contexts, they're rightly skeptical but of. That, they're like, yeah, we don't, you know, we don't like Hollywood. We don't want to take our cues from Hollywood. Then one person in Hollywood says but, something halfway conservative. It's like, oh, right. But not just that, Robbie. The GOP but specifically tweets, he's our when hero. a black person does that, they 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 become they cling to them because they get to say, oh 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 oh. Even though the entire black community, as a majority, what the numbers are, the majority of the black community, black men and black women vote Democrat in higher numbers than everybody else. The majority. We know what the collective opinion is of the community. So whenever they find one black person that is willing, a Stacey Dash, a Ben Carson, or Herschel Walker, a Kanye, these kinds of people who are willing to ingratiate themselves with the right um, to the detriment of their community, they cling to that. So they can say, no, 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 no. I have this black person that doesn't say that. It's a very intentional, deliberate thing. It's not just any celebrity. It's who's a black person that is going to be willing to say and do that. Yeah, I think it's any celebrity. I don't think so, but all right.
Well, respectfully, no, it's disagree. definitely, definitely any celebrity. I mean, but there are black people who feel differently uh -huh. than you and differently I said, than again, the, I spoke yeah. to what is the, the, the collective opinion. Let me put it to you this way. Kanye is, has been a widely hated character but most of his career by somebody, right? But the majority of Kanye's initial career before we, T-Swift before fans. we, but before we were aware of Kanye's mental health issues or any of these things in the most recent years, this exact community that suddenly they have Kanye's name with the Elons they have with them, they did not like Kanye until Kanye came out and started peddling Republican right-wing nonsense. That's the, just just the truth. So there's a reason for that. Well. I don't, again, I don't know that history was any more outrageous than half the stuff I see on Twitter on a daily basis. It doesn't, Probably it's not well, about whether it's more or less outrageous. It's about the fact that he consistently does deliberately offensive things to not just his own community, but he's now spread out and gone into what is something that's just clearly anti-Semitic. It just can't be defended. That is an anti-Semitic tweet. It just is. Well, we will continue this discussion at a later date and have more rising right after this. A new poll finds that most Latino voters have already made up their minds about how they plan to vote in the upcoming midterm elections. A new survey from the National Association of Latino Elected and Appointed shows less than half of independent Latino voters remain undecided. When asked who they plan to elect to Congress in November, 54% of all respondents said they'll support Democratic candidates, while 30% will support Republicans. The poll also found that the economy and rising inflation are the top issues on Latino voters' minds. Here to dive into what's driving the Latino vote this fall is president of Latina Civic Action Board member and Poder PAC, Dr. Patricia Campos-Medina and Abraham Enriquez, the president of Bienvenido U.S. Welcome to you both. Thank you for having us. Yeah, thanks so much for joining us. Um, I'll, I'll start with you, uh, Patricia. You know, we've seen, uh, I think, some movement uh, toward the Republican Party among um, Latino voters. There are some, uh, I think, exciting Latino candidates now for Rep in the Republican Party. Um, do you think Democrats are not do are doing enough or taking for granted um, this particular uh, category of voters? For those of us who have, I mean, are Latinos, Latino voters, and have been uh, advocating for issues that impact Latino voters. We know always that this has been the truth. Latino voters are not monolithic. They have always gone back and forth between Republicans and Democrats. And that is who we are. Uh, after the 2016 election and, and Donald Trump attacks on, on Latinos and immigrants and, and ignoring Puerto Rico, there was a huge shift of more Latinos moving towards the Democratic Party. But that is not a permanent shift. Uh, the only thing Republicans have to do is to move the needle a couple of points. And, and, and they are focusing on that. I don't think they're going to get beyond, uh, go beyond 30% in, in the near future. But if they move the needle a couple of points in key races, that, that will determine who controls the Senate and who controls the, the, uh, um, the Congress. And that's where I do believe Democrats are not doing enough. They are not focusing on key messages that, that keeps the needle moving forward for Republicans. What about you, Abraham? What do you think? Do you see Republicans getting past that 30%? Do you think they're doing enough? What are your thoughts? Yeah, so this is a very interesting poll. And granted, it is a left, it was done by a left-leaning organization, and it's more of a Biden poll, so I, I take it with a grain of salt. But look, 
it's no coincidence that even the New York, New York Times and, and major media networks are uh, are pretty much saying that Republicans, this is their election to lose when it comes to Latino voters. And that's because the Democrat Party, not just for this election cycle and the previous election cycle, but we're talking about over a decade, have really taken our community for granted. You go down to South Texas, you go down to Central Arizona, and you talk to voters that have always leaned Democrat, have always leaned left, and they say that they no longer can support a party that has left them. There once was a time where Obama ran on border security. There once was a time where Hillary Clinton ran on uh, protecting the unborn. And there once was a time where Joe Biden understood that we needed a secure border if we were going to be a prosperous nation. That no longer is the leadership that we have in the Democrat Party. And for independent centrist Hispanic voters, which is the majority of the voting bloc, uh, they can no longer stick to a party that doesn't even believe in protecting the basic, simple necessities uh, of creating a prosperous nation. And with so much riding on the on the line, look, inflation is seriously crushing family budgets. We have an unsecure border. Uh, moms and, and dads have to figure out whether they're going to buy their complete grocery list or a full tank of gas. All of that is going to weigh heavy on how the Democrat Party has really failed to provide good leadership and good policies um, for Latino voters come November, uh, this midterm cycle. So what I'm hearing from you, are you surprised to see Republicans, that number be so low on that poll? Is that something you think it's because of this particular poll, or do you think Republicans will perform better in the actual election? Because it sounds like you're saying that Democrats are not doing enough for their, Republican, uh, for their Latino voter base, and I don't disagree there. Uh, so do you expect Republicans to do, to do well? Yeah, I, I do. I think we're going to see a, a pretty much a huge shift when it comes to Republican voters, more specifically because, like, you have a lot of that age demographic that, that haven't been, we have two things. One, age demographic plays a big a big thing here, right? So young Latinos who couldn't vote in the past election cycle, who are now seeing their family, there's mom and dads really struggle at home, they're going to come out and vote with their family members. And because we're not selfish voters, we vote based on our families and principles and what, what our family needs. I think that, that that young Latino age demographic is going to swing a little bit more conservative than what we think, as well as there is a lot of Latinos who have sat out uh, previous election cycles for whatever reason, which we call them dormant voters, who are finally coming out and saying, no, I am voting Republican once again. And that all is going to shift the Latino vote more more right than what we believe. Yeah. And, and go ahead, Patricia. What's your response? The more, yes. The most revealing thing that I that came out of that poll for me was that, uh, and it was done by Naleo and uh, Unidos USA, is that 40% of Latinos who were polled say that they had not been contacted by Democrats to vote. And that is where, you know, the nuance of what we're talking about and how we're talking to Latinos voters matters. Because remember, uh, immigration is the third, more, the third issue that they're concerned about. They're mostly concerned about their budgets, uh, their work, their jobs, how they're gonna pay the bills. And those conversations are not happening with Latinos on the ground. And this is where I always worry about Democrats assuming that because we don't like the Republicans in general, we don't like uh, uh, Trump in general, that we are just going to come out and vote. Voting, and it, this happens whether you're a white voter, a suburban voter, or a Latino urban voter, you have to go talk to them and connect with them personally. And so that is not happening in some key races. And I'm really concerned. Right here in New Jersey on DC uh, 7, uh, we have a very important race for New Jersey. And my mother, who is a, a, a secure Democratic voter, has not received one piece of mail to asking her to vote. And that, for me, is where 
Democrats fall short, which we assume that Latinos are here and we continue to vote. But the young voters who are concerned about their student loans and their jobs, they are not carrying the message of how Democrats are going to help them. So I urge, you know, someone who cares about bread and butter issues. I come from the labor movement. We want to hear about what is the plan of the Democrats to actually address those issues. We care about immigration, we care about abortion rights, but those are not the issues right now that will drive us to the polls. And, and, and at this point in the in the campaign, it's too late. You know, most Democratic campaigns wait until the last six weeks to start spending money on Latino messaging. Doesn't work. You have to spend a year, two years building relationships on the ground. If you're going to turn this vote and skip it on the Democratic side. Mm. Uh, Abraham, last word. Yeah, I would say, uh, Dr. Patricia, I agree with everything that you're saying. Um, I think the, the majority of Hispanics here in America are the working class Hispanics. We are the ones that are building the economy for this country. So I invite you, Dr. Patricia, to join the Republican Party because the Republican <laughs> Party is now the party of the working class. The Democrat Party has proven I agree with that, again, but let's the, leave it the there. Democrat, the Democrat Party has proven time and time again to be on the side of big, big corporation and big government. And Dr. Patricia, I know you from, from what you're saying, you believe in fighting for the Latino vote. You believe in representation. And that is what the modern day Republican Party is. So I, we, we welcome you with open arms. <laughs> I believe I want to end the assumption that Latinos are a motorliquid vote and that we are just go, voting on emotion. We are war on emotion. We care about immigrants. We care about our right to choose. But we also care about Puerto Rico and what's happening in Puerto Rico. And there's nobody talking about how, how right. the Democrats are going to address the crisis in Puerto Rico. And those are American citizens that can just get up and vote. Pay attention to the details and the nuance of mm. our community. Well, thank you both so much for joining us today. We really appreciate it. Thank you thank for having you. us. More Rising right after this. A San Antonio police officer has been fired for an incident in which he shot a teenager sitting in his car and eating a hamburger. 17-year-old Eric Cantu was shot and wounded in the parking lot of a fast food restaurant earlier this month. We've, bought the, we've got the body cam footage. Warning, this video is graphic. Get out of the car. According to the AP, Cantu was hospitalized in stable condition and initially charged with evading police and aggravated assault. After the officer originally claimed he was attacked by the teen, the district attorney said a decision on whether to prosecute those charges has not been made. And so to be clear, there was another person in that car. Um, there was a girl mm -hmm. in the passenger seat. So, I mean, even if you think, like, he was justified in shooting at the car, which I'm not saying that, but he could have, you could have killed the passenger, right? Don't care. They don't care who it is. They don't care who he kills. He doesn't care because there's no world in which that's justified. Like, so that tells you everything about the reckless disregard for human life, period, because yeah. there's no, what, what happened, what transpired there that could possibly justify a need to shoot? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, they're saying it looked like he was about to flee, which it kind of looked like. So fleeing, so fleeing from the police now, we could... I mean, we, this is what we had. I'm going to get John Oliver to get it. 
and no, I don't think fleeing from the police should be a death sentence, but you should not flee from the police. Even if you shouldn't, Robbie, I shouldn't, I shouldn't, I shouldn't punch you in the arm right now. Right, you shouldn't. You shouldn't, I shouldn't. But that doesn't mean that you're allowed to come with an entirely disproportionate reaction. Yes, maybe you, should, you shouldn't flee from the police. We also need to interrogate why one would want to flee from the police, because I can only imagine, again, this man's gun is already there. You see how quickly, with the quickness with which he started shooting at that kid, I'm sure that there was something about the way he approached him, that gun was probably visible that gave him reason to feel fair and alarm because again his initial action was to open the car like the car door yes yeah. he's eating and then it's to flee why did he want to flee let's interrogate the fair and the reasonable fear in that because again people are people flee people flee situations out of fear there's a reason why it's called fight or flight mode right that's why people run people flee situations because they're afraid so people flee to police we need to interrogate why they're afraid and then worse when we literally see the evidence of why they would be afraid right, they should run. be afraid of fleeing which dramatically increases the likelihood of something like this happening. Robbie, you know what dramatically increases the likelihood of this? That police do this, right? Police shoot, admit to. This is what the police admit to, their numbers. Police shoot and kill over 1,000 people each year, 1,045 people last year. That's what they admit to. So that's not who they just shoot. That number wouldn't, wouldn't be incorporated into that. That's not your George Floyds. That's not your Elijah McLeans. That's not any of these other people. So well, it's obviously not proper for a police officer to just wildly fire bullets at the slightest provocation. At we saw a kid eating a sandwich. He could have shot somebody else. He could have hit. It, it is, that it's is not, not enhancing public. Safety it's not like just that. that he could have shot somebody else. It's that he could have shot that per He wasn't supposed to be shooting at that kid regardless. Even if there was nobody else, pretend it was completely an empty, destitute area and nobody else could be harmed. That person should not be harmed. What reason is there? Even if you listen, the Supreme Court has already found fleeing from the police in and of itself is not even indicative of is not by itself grounds for the police to even say, oh, it's guilt, you of know, or not. to be questioned. But this is what I'm saying. But it so is we a crime can't, itself. We can't have a standard. It's indication of, all, of guilt of the crime of fleeing from the police. Fleeing from. So usually, resisting right, there, there isn't an actual resisting arrest. But we have to actually know whether or not there was any grounds to arrest. There's, that's a whole legal, a whole nother legal analysis, right? Because we don't know anything about what he's even coming to come speak to this kid about whether or not he even has legal standing to question him. What reason is he approaching the, the kid's car? We don't know any of that. So we can't say, oh, fleeing arrest, because we don't know whether or not there was a lawful arrest that could be made in the first place. Also, additionally, it's not fleeing from the police is not itself a, char a charge or a crime. There is a charge called obstructing governmental administration. If we had some other lawful reason or something that we know that's going to happen. But right now what we have is the police officer behaving unlawfully. This right here is trying to kill somebody. You're literally shooting indiscriminately towards them. And then afterwards, your immediate actions is to lie on, lie on him and then have him charged with crimes. And now we don't know whether or not we'll charge the officer. There's nothing here to defend or mitigate, I don't think. Okay, but I agree. But we should have a general rule that you don't just drive off when you're part of a police stop, it, it could be a traffic stop, could be something like this. You don't just, if I get pulled over, I don't just like crank it up to 90 and floor it and run away. Robbie, is that what happened that's here? That's not what people should do. Is that what happened here? Is that what happened here? That's not what happened here, but okay. he did not, he, it looks like mm. he was starting to pull away. It looks like, because, well, why is he pulling away, Robbie? A officer approached I, his car with a gun, opens up his car to he's eating, and immediately starts shooting. He, there's a reason. He, why is he fleeing, Robbie? I don't, I don't know. I'm just saying you shouldn't. <laughs> okay. I mean, but that is true. Robbie, like, I hear that, you. That doesn't remove, obviously, the responsibility of the police officer. there is a world. We have to live in a, a reasonable world. If you literally watch officers, we already know we live in this 
this is a, a consistent thing, right? Like, I'm not making this up. An everyday reality in this country is that police shoot and kill someone every day. Not just shooting people, yeah. not just harming people, not just assaulting anybody, not just any level of police brutality. No, no, no. Police are shooting and killing people every day in this country. So there is a problem now when you look at a video and you, you cannot find unlawful activity from this kid. You see a kid eating a sandwich, police officers open up his car door and then immediately start firing. We don't even have, we have nothing, nothing that's been presented to us even after the fact. Think about it in a police narrative. They have yet to even present to you what they were, what were you approaching him for? What were you questioning for? What is he accused of? You haven't heard it because there probably isn't actually anything. For somebody to be charged with oh, uh, uh, resisting arrest, there has to be. Well, they said, well, a I've read this story and they coupled. said that the officer thought that was a car of someone he had tried to pull over on the previous day and had not and and had just so he thought he off. tried to pull someone who knows if stop. that's correct we don't just uncredibly uh accept what we're told but that is the justification given so, for stop for this stop even if again it could be wrong but that's the justification. first of all and that's again not a thing we, we need to again talk about the law if we're going to talk about what you shouldn't do let's talk about police behaving unlawfully the police that is not that is not the law police are not allowed to think because i saw you on one day and i wanted to stop you i didn't get to or i didn't actually have anything i would charge you with i didn't speak to because i think i might have wanted to stop you the other day and i think i see you again i can now approach you with no new no anything no that's literally not the law that's not the law i mean but there's just <laughs> but there there is no law if there's no enforcement of the law to some degree. Like I, so if I'm a libertarian. There's a lot that we enforce that sh I don't. I wouldn't. I just don't think it should be illegal. I don't think it sh should be the law. And I want police to behave more responsibly and to be disciplined when they don't behave responsibly, as they frequently don't. But if we're going to have laws at all, and I think overwhelmingly most people think. There need to be some laws, and thus there also then needs to be some enforcement of them that you can't just like, you can't just what ignore. What laws are being one? What laws are the police enforcing here? You have not, you have yet to find me one. But second of all, if you believe that police should be held accountable, these things should happen. If we are watching, we literally just saw a video with a child eating a, eat a teenager eating a sandwich, and then the police start shooting at him and his car repeatedly. And we're not having a discussion about that officer being prosecuted or what unlawful conduct he's committed. Well, we despite are having a discussion. Despite we're the, having no, discussion no, we're having a discussion, but we are not having a discussion about the officer's conduct. Instead, we keep talking about, oh, the kid shouldn't have fleed and what the kid, the kid did wrong. But I have, we have yet to be able to identify anything actually illegal the child did. But we, we found several different, not just only illegal, illegal conduct on the part of the officer, but also violations of police policy and training well, of what they're taught. So well, that the should officer be has been fired. Maybe he should be prosecuted I mean, not for maybe. public endangerment. Be. If we were going to um, prosecute, if you with the quickness with which our, this is the problem in a criminal system that holds everybody else to an entirely different standard than officers. If you were prepared to prosecute a child that was eating a sandwich because he fleed the officer, if you were prepared to, to prosecute him, you should be prepared to prosecute the officer that you have on video shooting at him he and that you know, and that you know now he should be charged. It's not about just what he shouldn't do. You should be prepared to prosecute that same officer for not just shooting at this child indiscriminately, but also lying about it. Because again, you have to interrogate the lie. If the child was acting, if the child was acting unlawfully, if the police were justified in their behaviors, why are we lying? That, that much is not undisputed. We know that it was a lie. That's already... That was information presented to us up front. Oh, well, I want to read the police chief's statement here. There's nothing I can say in defense of that officer's actions that night. I think what happened initially, there was some contact made, but that did not justify the shooting, which is what we're saying. Yeah, because that, I mean, it was in a parking lot. There was another passenger in the car. I don't, we do not want police who just 
fire their guns wildly at the slightest provocation. I, mean, I agree on that. I agree on that. I just don't. Just as a norm, because we've talked about this on the show before, people should not. People. I'm not saying it's a crime. People should. People take on greater risk, personal risk. They speed away from the cops. Again, if you live in a country where police are endangering people and they're literally murdering, beating, maiming, paralyzing, hurting people every day, and you live in a police state, it is reasonable for people to develop a fear of those people, because we have seen countless times when people do not flee the police, where they do not resist the police, where they are compliant, where they are talking to the police, and they end up shot and dead. We've seen countless videos of that. So you have to acknowledge that. It can't just be a conversation that's condemning everybody who flees the police without ever acknowledging why people flee the police and the legitimacy there. That's what I'm saying. I, yeah, I'm not saying there's no, I'm not saying their fear is not legitimate. It's just practical life advice. Mm-hmm. Just practical mm-hmm. life advice. So I want everybody to stay alive. Don't run away from the police. Well, if you want everybody to stay alive, you should be talking about why the police keep shooting and killing people. That should oh, be the bigger focus. That. They shouldn't. We're focused on both. <laughs> All right. We'll have more Rising right after this. Podcast star Joe Rogan went viral over the weekend for this conversation with Rolling Stone founder Yan Wenner about government regulation of the Internet. Let's watch. I love the Internet. great. And I love social media, you know. Uh, but like every other industry in the United States, it has to be regulated. If you don't regulate it... But who regulates it? The government. Do you trust the government to regulate the internet? Absolutely. You trust the people that got us into the Iraq war under false pretenses to regulate the internet? Uh, Do you think that makes any sense? Well, wait a minute. I would not... The people who got us into the Iraq war... It's the government. Was the the politicians. It's the government. In the end, yes, it's the government. But who else is going to regulate? But if they're going to be in power and they're regulating the Internet, they're going to regulate the Internet in a way that suits their best interests. The same way they do with the banking industry, the same way they do with the environment, the same way they do with energy. The same way they do with everything. No, what, is, what represents their interests? There's so mu- you're talking about so much money mm-hmm. involved in disseminating information in and a very particular way. So I thought that was a very interesting discussion on uh, Rogan because uh, Rogan, I thought, really owned him in the debate to use that terminology. And of course, it's a much longer conversation. But so Yan Winner is uh, was very involved in Rolling Stone magazine. Mm-hmm. You know, as a kind of countercultural um, icon or a countercultural trendsetter. Yeah. Um, and is now coming to the place that so many former. I think interesting countercultural media organizations that have over time become mainstream mm-hmm. now regurgitate this whole, oh no, there's too much misinformation. We need the government to be in control of it, so then that'll all be fixed. And Rogan pointing out, you know, very reasonable issues with that and uh, and, and and you know pointing out all the time that government has gotten it wrong or mainstream thinkers have gotten it wrong, which is something you'd think the founder and founding editor of Rolling Stone uh, or, or publisher, whatever his position was, uh, would understand. And he's just like, no, 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 I totally trust the government to be in charge of it. And then he tries to, to distinguish between, I guess, between politicians mm-hmm. who are not trustworthy and, like, you know, the inner, the, the, the people who staff government agencies. <laughs> I don't think that you, and you probably know yeah. from your work in policing, that yeah. those people are not, that actually the politicians are crooked but accountable because nominally because they can yeah. be voted out the, the career staffers that you can't do anything about are to, to, in in my view often an even bigger problem um but it's it's the whole the whole put the government in charge of the internet project yeah. because there's too much and they're saying that because 
they don't like that there is information being shared on yeah. social media that is contrary to what Yen Wenner thinks you would want to know. Or it, it, it thinks that you know, le if left to their own devices, people will just consume bad information. And of course, yes, the internet has bad information out there, but it's like a very like who watches the watchman kind of thing. Well, you're yeah. saying we trust government, you know, government officials or staffers to determine what's true or not. Mm -hmm. How would that work? <laughs> you know, um, unexpected plot twist. I agree with Rogan on yeah. this on this issue. I do. Um, I'm wary. I'm also wary. I think we have to start talking about the motivations. A lot. A lot of these people. I think you know we live in a time where a lot of people that wouldn't have had access to media and access to news are able to get their their foot in the door. Are able to be people that people refer to as thinkers. Are able to put out different ideas and move conversations forward. I think a lot of news now is being driven by online journalists and um, these conversations. And I think a lot of these people that were traditionally in these spaces don't like that. I think they would like it to be um, more of the club it was, you know, a much smaller, a smaller um, claim on this information and what's put out there. And so I, I don't think the motivations are, one, that genuine, but two, I just don't think there's any place for the government to be regulating the internet. It, it can only right. go bad. And the same right. conversations we had about the misinformation boards, uh, you know, even with the with the company policies, it's it's just a bad idea. I can't see how we could possibly think it would go well because what is the government? I mean, historically, what is the government going to let us say, or what does the government decide? There's a whole reason why we have we have free speech free speech as a protected right, because there's already this idea that without that, people will, you'll be censored. Um, certain information will be able to get out there. So if you get into the business of, also, it just seems like an overwhelming task uh, regu regulating the internet. I don't even know how they would go about doing something like that, but I, I think it's a bad idea. I think in general, America has too much regulation, period. I think America is just way too involved in every aspect of feeling like, you don't get to control all the information that people say, espouse their viewpoints, what they talk about, what they do online. I think it's an absurd, let me not say it's absurd, but I don't. I think it's an unreasonable position to want the government to come in and, and take over and to more, essentially more police our lives, but just in a different way. So it, it, A project that is in many ways uh, precluded by the First Amendment. Yes, yeah, there's absolutely. only you know so much, if it came to it, the Supreme Court would even let you do on this subject because we have very broad right. uh, free speech rights, even to say, Things that are wrong or things yeah. that are hateful yeah. or things that are like those things can be bad and you're supposed to call them out and criticize them. Yeah. And, you know, social media companies can come up with new rules to kind of deal with that. Yeah. And we can criticize them if we think they go too far, as I often do. And we often criticize on the yeah. show. But you can't bring in, you can't bring in the government to enforce it uh -huh. because it's going to get worse if you do that. And also the First Amendment largely stops you. So right now, the, the policy fight to get a little bit more granular that's going on. And the Supreme Court is going to hear cases on this front yeah. is over this Section 230, which is the current um, regulation mm -hmm. for the internet. That what it does is um, it, it is written in such a way that um, basically keeps uh, the the platforms themselves yeah. don't incur liability yeah. for the speech that occurs when I or you or anyone else speaks, yeah. uh, which is what allows the internet to be the way it is. Because obviously, if you could sue Twitter for yeah. something I say, then Twitter wouldn't let you post anything. Absolutely they would just, not. that would be the end of that. Right. So if, if people like, you know, I'm sure there are people who are like, oh, that's not so bad. Nobody, nobody, Twitter gone, <laughs> Facebook gone. But I think for, for those of us who have, despite, you know, warts and all, have found value in communicating with other yeah. people across the vast distances of what is allowed by social media and, and all sorts of other tech uh, innovations over yeah. the last few decades, um, that is all imperiled by changing the Section 230 regulation mm -hmm. or some of these other things. I, conservatives have gotten it in their head that, oh, yeah, if we get rid of Section 230, that'll punish tech companies for having censored us. Like, well, it will punish them in that 
then the whole thing will cease to exist yeah, and exactly. there will be vast more like there will be more censorship yeah because if they're responsible for your for your the things you say yeah they're not going to let you post it will or yeah. they're going to only say approve people only blue checkmark people yeah. can post only good mainstream liberals that we trust so it's it's a whole like secret plot not secret but a misguided plot to to actually undo the the speech we're allowed to have right now yeah Listen, so the Supreme Court's going to weigh in on it. So we're going to see. It's going to be interesting. I can't, you know, the, the Supreme, current Supreme Court is a Mickey Mouse operation, so I can't, I can't have too much faith. But in a very that. pro First Amendment. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, even in, you know, the, a lot of their First I Amendment suppose. cases are eight, are nine zero or eight yeah, one. Yeah, yeah, Mickey Mouse Court. But yeah, they'll do that. Um, but as far as I'm not some big uh, free speech champion, and I also am not somebody who cares about the framers or framers' intent or originalism or those things. They not hold a, a particular seat of value in my heart. Nonetheless. Less. For these purposes, I think it's important for people who do care about that and are constantly talking about free speech to remember this has been contemplated. Like when we got the right to free speech, like our, our founders, this is discussed. If you go get the Federalist Papers, you go look at Federalist Number Ten. They did think about a world where there would be groups and people coming up with ideology and information and spreading that. That's something they contemplated and still wanted. Yeah, you know right, what I mean? Yeah. They, they yeah. wanted that. Yeah. They knew there would be media that would be powerful. Yes, very much so. So this idea that we keep, you know, as we don't like the way the world is changing or the internet or who's getting to say. And who gets to you know large platforms? We we pretend as though this is completely this new issue that um, we need to start limiting our idea of freedom of speech. No, no, no. When we when we got the right, when we thought about it, when we decided why it was valuable, when we decided why we needed a media to serve as checks and balances, when we decided we needed people to be able to freely uh, criticize their government or talk about what they want and spread these ideas, we 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 thought about it with this in mind. So um, I, I'm gonna have to go with Rogan on this one. Yeah. Yeah. Same. What do you well, Alimi, it was wonderful having you in studio today. Great seeing you. Thank and, you. And uh, we'll love to have you back again. Thank you, my favorite baby, Ryan Seacrest. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much. Well, uh, be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. For those of you who like to listen while on the go, we're now available anywhere that podcasts are available themselves. And we're going to check out uh, Roku, which we're also now available on, and it's very exciting, and I'll see you all tomorrow.